Why don't we stand together and open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. Last week we had kind of a lengthy introduction, and again, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and one of the ushers will come by and give you one. We'll see how far we get this morning. Uh, I was hoping to get through, the bulletin says verses 1 through 8, I'm thinking 1 through 6, but the reality may be 1 through 3. We'll just see what happens here. It's kind of a hard thing because there's so much in here and there's so much for us to glean from it, and uh, it is very rich. And so let's just read the first six verses. It says, um, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy, And keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. And John begins this letter that he penned, uh, that the Lord dictated to him. He says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth." To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Father, we do thank you for your word, Lord. It is, it is immutable. Lord, it's unchanging. Lord, it will survive all things, Lord. Your word says that in when all things are passed away, your word will never pass away. And Lord, your word is true, and your word is steadfast, and your word is set, Lord. There's nothing and no one that can take it from us, God. We hold it in high esteem because it is your word. And God, we pray that our hearts be prepared, Lord, to hear from it, Lord, that we would hear it with reverence. Lord, that we would hear it with the intent of being open and, and to, be, to, to do something about what we read here today, what we learn So, Lord, have your way with us. Pour out your spirit. How we need you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's be seated. Last week we had a lengthy introduction, and I won't really uh, recap any of those things. But why is the book of Revelation important to us today? Now, maybe the question uh, has a simple answer for you. Maybe not. But one of the things that it does is it reveals who Jesus is. And many people have uh, an idea of who Jesus is, but not a biblical understanding of who Jesus is. So the book of Revelation shows us who he is, and especially in his glorified state, and the plan not only for the future of the wicked, but the future of the righteous, which if you are in Christ, you are among the righteous. Amen. Isn't that a happy thing to consider, that of all the things that we see around us, that you're among the redeemed? Guess what? Your ticket has been stamped for glory, and the devil can't take it away from you. Even your performance can't take it away from you. If you are a child of God, you are a child of God. If you're born again of God's Spirit, it's, it's something that he does. It's a work that he does, and what he does is perfect. Now, we are not perfect, but he is perfect, and the work that he does 
He is faithful to complete that work which he has done and is doing in you. But it's a process, isn't it? It is a process. So it reveals who Jesus is and his plan for the future. And reading about what is going to happen in the book of Revelation ought to stir us and to compel us to share the gospel with family, friends, and strangers. Does it do that? Because it really ought to, because this is a very serious book. Because it not only, uh, in, in the, here in this first chapter, which we'll get to next week, we're going to look at who Jesus, what he really looks like. There's, there's very few, if any, descriptions like what we have here in verse 9, beginning in verse 9 of chapter 1, of what Jesus looks like when he comes back in his full glory. And I would encourage you to consider who it is that you serve. Do you serve a Jesus of your own making, or do you serve a Jesus whom the Bible says? His character. Who is he to you? So reading about these things that are about to come on the earth ought to compel us, like Paul, to compel us to share the truth and love to those around us. And it also makes us accountable to the holiness of God, doesn't it? Because not only is he a God of grace, which we know, but he is also a God of vengeance, a God of vengeance against those who have spurned his only offer of salvation in Christ. There's only one way to God, and that's through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Jesus said himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except through me, he said. That means it's open to every single human being that ever will live, but there's only one way, that narrow path. Few there be that find their way on it, but oh, how broad is the gate and wide is the gate that leads to destruction. And folks, that's the majority of the people in this world. And so as we read this, it ought to bring accountability to us of God's holiness, of his, of his love, but also of his severity and judgment. No, churches don't like to talk about the severity of God anymore. They want to tell you about how God accepts you just the way you are. And he does, to an extent, but you better come being willing to change. If you come in here with uh, issues of anger, you better leave a little bit closer to having that stuff taken from you. If you come in with uh, fornication or homosexuality as part of your life, you better leave here today with that thing gone from your life, or at least got you thinking about it and, and, and causing you to turn. Every single time you hear the message of Christ, you're always turning and turning until the point where you're his completely. That's the goal, is to be his, to worship him. So reading this, it does make us accountable, because like I said before, the wrath of God is not popular but it is true. See, if God is holy, God also hates that which is not. Right? He loves us, and thank God we're in the beloved. I'm so blessed to be a Christian, are you? My name is written in the Lamb's book of life, and so is yours if you're a believer in Christ. You've got nothing to fear, but yet reading this book brings intrepidation to my heart for others. Does it you? Does it challenge you to look around, to look at family, look at friends, look at co-workers? See, when Jesus walked the earth, he was the Lamb of God, meek and mild, seeking to save the lost. But when he comes back in his second coming, physically to the earth, he is coming back as the Lion of the tribe of Judah to exact vengeance upon a world that has rejected him, and he will destroy his enemies. 
He will destroy his enemies. For the believer, this book offers great comfort for us, but for the unbeliever, it ought to strike fear and reverence for who God is. That is a message that very few will share today, but it's necessary. Are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Are you born again? If you're not, today is the day. Don't leave here without it. Don't leave here without having the assurance that you know that you're a child of God. I'll be certainly happy to pray with you. we got elders and deacons here who would be loved to pray with you. Pray for each other, but take it seriously. You know, the, the fear of God was what got me into the kingdom of God. I remember when I was 24 years old and someone told me that I was bound for hell. <laughs> and I really didn't like that. Because I thought I was okay. Because I compared myself to my fellow man. Well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. But God doesn't grade on a curve. He grades according to, according to his righteousness. That is the standard. That's his standard. It's not my standard. He set the standard. I must rise to that occasion. And the only way I can is by being in Christ. Because if I am in Christ, then God no longer sees me in my dilapidated self. He sees me with the robe of righteousness. He sees me with the blood of his son covering me. That makes me accepted to him. It's the only way. But fear is not a bad thing, folks. If you've come here this morning hoping for a really feel-good message, you're probably going to get some of it. But i got to tell you that fear is not a bad thing. Fear is what drove me into the arms of Christ because I did not want to face him based on what was read to me that day. I don't want to face him in that way. I want to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I don't want to hear, depart from me, I never knew you. Yes, you did all the right things. Yes, you went to church faithfully every week. You even went to church twice a week. Wow. And the money you gave. Wow. They even built a new wing onto the church with the name of your plaque on it. It's, it's beautiful. But I don't know you. I don't know you. See, that is the thing. We need to consider. You know, there are many years that I've heard the book of Revelation shared with me and things that I've read, and there's a belief that once the great tribulation occurs, which is the, the majority of this book speaks of that time period coming upon the earth, not yet, but it's coming, it's going to be the worst time in history. In fact, Jesus said it'll be so terrible and so devastating that if he didn't return, no, no person would be saved from it. That's how devastating it's going to be. But the Bible says that there is hope even for those going through the, the, the great tribulation period. The church will be taken up before then. And we'll, we'll read about that. The church will be removed before that great tribulation period takes place. But during that great tribulation, the, de the deception is going to be so great, folks. We've never seen it. We've never experienced it like it's going to happen. People will, they, they will be able to have the opportunity to get saved, but it's going to be so, so incredibly difficult. Let me read to you in 2 Thessalonians 
chapter 2, verse 7, it says, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And when the lawless one, speaking of the Antichrist, when he is revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming, it says, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all signs and uh, power and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because what they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved and for this reason notice God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie that they may all be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness see the delusion on the earth that we're going to be reading about in the next several weeks is going to be so great but there is still hope even within that time frame. We see that even angels are dispatched during the great tribulation toward the end. In fact, it says in Revelation 14, verse 6, says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven. And again, this is in that great period of the great tribulation where the deception is going to be so great, where the devastation is going to be so horrible. But notice the love and the tenacity of God. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. You see, God does not offer hope where there is no hope. But don't say within yourselves, Well, I can just wait. That's a deception that a lot of people think. Well, I'm going to live and do what I want now. I'm going to spend my money. I'm going to live in adultery. I'm going to have my fun now. And then later on down the road when I'm old and decrepit and, you know, I'm in a nursing home, then I'll consider it. But see, you don't have the luxury of knowing that you're going to even have that time. You could walk out of here and be, and, and be smashed by a car. Many years, or uh, was it five or six years ago, those, young, those four young teen ladies from Fairport were driving out by the Finger Lakes. They had no idea. Their life was ahead of them. Boom, gone. Their lives were taken from them. They, they thought they had years ahead of them. They were looking forward to marriages and graduations and kids and things that we all think about, but they didn't get that opportunity. So we don't know. So we should never play games with this kind of thing. This is eternity. This is not something that's just going to pass and, and everything's going to be better and then everybody will be in heaven. No, everyone will not be in heaven. You have to make the decision today and don't play games with God any longer. You have no idea what tomorrow holds. You don't even know what today holds. My very next breath is a gift from God that I do not even know. He could take my breath. I could have a brain aneurysm standing before you and fall over and I'm done. But God says, take this very seriously. That's why we read this book. It reveals who he is, our accountability to him. It shows us his great plan for the future, for the unjust and for the just. Hallelujah. <laughs> right? Because you and I, when we look at the end of the book, boy, we got some great things coming, folks. Actually, the greatest thing coming is him when we see him in the clouds. The church raptured from the earth. We'll talk about that next week, the difference between the rapture and the second coming. They're two separate events. We will look at that.
But let's look now at the very first verse here, now that we've had the time together here. Let's read it. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. Notice that it says the revelation of Jesus Christ. Look at your Bible and look at the title of your Bible. Um, I've got a, a, a Cambridge Bible. Not this one, but I've got one where it says, and I'm looking at a picture of it right now. It says, The Revelation of St. John the Divine. Does any of your Bibles say that? It does? Cross it out. <laughs> it's not the revelation of St. John the Divine. Number one, John would be the first one to tell you that he's not divine, because divine is God. There's only one who's divine. So it's not the revelation of St. John, certainly. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. The title gives it away. That's exactly what it is. It's a revelation of him, not John, and certainly not St. John the Divine, because John would be the first to say, I am not divine. Look to him, right? So if you've got the revelation of St. John the Divine, just cross it out and put the revelation of Jesus Christ. And maybe it was just because John penned the book that the publishers decided to put in there. I don't know, but we know the truth, right? This book is called The Apocalypse. And when we think of the modern definition of apocalypse, we think of the final destruction of the world. That's literally what we think of when we think of apocalypse. But do you know that the apocalypse, the, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the word revelation is apocalypsis, which is quite different from what we think. Now, the, this book of Revelation does contain the apocalypse. It contains those things pertaining to the end. Certainly it does. But the word, we have to, we have to, be, we have to look at this, because the apocalypse is an unveiling, an uncovering. Something that wasn't made manifest is now made manifest. The idea is like having a beautiful picture here that someone really famous painted, and it stretches the whole end of this, this stage, and it's covered with black velvet. And everyone is waiting. It's been talked about for months. He's finally got it done. And then he takes that curtain, the side of it, and everyone's looking. It's the best painting you've ever seen. And then finally he takes it down. The wraps come off of it. It's revealed in its glory. That's what this word means. And that's what this is about. It's about the revelation of Jesus Christ that God the Father gave to him. And we're going to look at that in a minute. It's quite a bit different from Apocrypha. If you have a Catholic Bible, you know that there's several books in between the Old Testament and the New called the Apocrypha. Those are called hidden books because the authors are spurious and the content is not always factual. That's why it's not in our Bibles. But it means hidden. It's quite a bit different from this word, apocalypsis, which is to reveal. Do you understand? One is to reveal, and the other one is to hide. Is God trying to hide anything from any one of us today? Does God want to hide anything from you, or is he illuminating? Does he want to illuminate? Does he want to show you things? And why would he do that to begin with? Do you find that you fear what you don't know? Isn't that true? We fear what we do not understand. We fear what we don't know is coming, but yet he has shown us what is coming. Maybe not to the minutest details of our own personal lives, but he's given us the bigger picture. And again, I've said this before, and forgive me if I sound like a broken record, but he's given us these things to encourage us. 
Because when you look around, there is no stability in the world. Everything is going crazy. And this is so important for us because God is saying, don't you worry. Don't you fret. Don't settle down. Relax. I've got this covered. Everything is right on time. It's right on track. There's nothing that's happening without me under, knowing what is going on. In fact, I told you in advance, way before it even happens, so then when it does happen, you're going to be like, wow, that's who we serve. Is your God omniscient? Or is your God like you, where I can't really see what's happening tomorrow? No, he is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the ending. He's the first letter of the alphabet and the last letter. If there were any other letters to the left or to the right, he would be all of those too. He was always there. He never ceases to exist. He never ceases, he never ceased to exist. He's outside of it all, and he looks at it as a physical property and says, because I'm God, I can tell you what's coming. I love in David, in, in Psalm 139, what does it say? Lord, you even know my thoughts afar off. Before I speak a word, Lord, you know it. I love that. It's scary because then I know what it, he knows what I'm going to say a couple days from now. But yet he loves me today. Does he love you today? He does. And yet he knows what's coming he knows what you're going to do tomorrow. He knows how you're going to fail him this very day and even this week. And yet, does he love you now? See, if it were me and I knew you were going to fail me three days from now, I'd be looking at you funny now. I knew that about you. You're just a rotten, no good something. But God says, you know what, I've seen it all. I know exactly what you're thinking. I know what motivates you. And yet, out of even still with all that, I love you with all my heart. I, I would still go to the cross for you. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that the message? Isn't that a wonderful message? Have you let it sink down into your soul, into your very being, that while you were yet sinner, while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. That's a love that is unlike any love that you've ever experienced. And that is agape love. That is the love of God to you. Self-sacrificing. We could never deserve it. And he's always bestowing that love upon you and I. What a great and awesome Savior. Can I get an amen? amen. He loves you. Isn't it wonderful to be loved by a holy God? And especially on this side. We know that we're not going to be on the other side. I don't know, but to me, that, that ought to turn this into a big party. When we leave this room, when we go into the other room there to fellowship and eat and hang out, what a great thing. But that's how great he is. But it's an unveiling. It's an unveiling. The New Testament saints were eagerly awaiting this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 4, Paul said to them, he says, I thank God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the apocalypsis of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're eagerly awaiting for the revelation of, of Jesus Christ. Even the Old Testament saints, they thought during their day Jesus would come back. They misunderstood Rome and Nero and Domitian and who, who was alive during the writing of this. And that was why Paul was, or John was sent to Patmos, was because of Domitian. Domitian hated him because of what John was able to share. 
They tried to boil him in oil. Wood didn't work, so they put him out in a mining colony out in the, out in the Aegean Sea. Get rid of this guy. And yet God's love is so great. But they were eagerly awaiting. And, we're, and it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. His name is Jesus in Greek. In Hebrew, it's Joshua. That's what Mary and Joseph called him, Joshua, which is a contraction of Jehovah Shua. And his title, Christ, or Christos, literally means the anointed one. It means the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Joshua, the Messiah. Jesus, the Messiah. That's what it means. Jesus, the anointed. And there are so many other names and titles in the book of Revelation, and we're not going to take the time to go through them all, but there's quite a few. I'll just name a few. The faithful witness. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's the Son of Man. He's the first and the last. He's the Son of God the one who is holy and true, the one who has the key of David. He is the amen, and I love this one. He is the faithful and true witness. And there are many, many other titles of Jesus, all different facets of his character, like a diamond. Have you seen a big diamond like the one I have in my office? (laughs) It's about that big around. I got biometric entry only, retina scans. You got to take a blood thing, you know, you got to prick your finger. Is it really you to get into my, yeah, it's multifaceted. It's there on a big little altar. Of course, I'm only kidding. It's not that big. It's only about that. No, just. (laughs) But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Of all the different things that Jesus has, has shown to us, he's like that multifaceted diamond. There's so many facets to him. He's, in a sense, he's unknowable. I don't know about you, but that demands my reverence. It demands my awe. It demands everything, like the, the hymn we sing. demands my life, my all. When I consider this great God, so many facets of his beauty, of his holiness, of his compassion and grace and love, so many levels, so many, it's like peeling an onion that never stops. It's just one layer after another. My, uh, my jaw is just hitting the ground every single time. Is that who you serve? I hope it is, because a God that you can f- figure out, a God that you can finally put in the box and say, I've got it, I know who he is, there he is, he ceases to be God. But he is Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice something here in this first verse. Notice the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants things which must shortly take place, and he sent and he signified it by his angel to his servant John. I want you to notice the chain of command, and you can write this down, but it's right there, but it's a little out of order because of the, the, the way it's written in English. First, it's God the Father. God the Father has the revelation, and it's given, excuse me, to his son. Notice, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God the Father gave to him. And then who does he show it to? Who does Jesus give this revelation to? He gives it to an angel. And then the angel speaks it, signifies it to John. And what is John going to do? John's going to take that message and he's going to give it to the seven churches and to all believers. You and I, all throughout the ages, very old book that we have in our lap, and yet still unfulfilled. In fact, 
The church age is not even over with. And chapter 3, the end of chapter 3, really speaks the end of the church age. And then the rapture of the church beginning in chapter 4. And from 4 onward has not happened yet. So we still have a vast majority of things ahead of us. But notice the chain of command. And Jesus only spoke those things that were given to him by his father. He was completely submitted to him. He didn't make this up. It was something that was given to him. In John chapter 3, beginning in verse 32, John the Baptist is speaking of of Jesus, and he says, And what he has seen, what Jesus has seen and heard, that he testifies. And no one receives his testimony. He He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true, For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God does not give the Spirit by measure. And the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And let me read one more to you. This is awesome. John chapter 5, verse 20. It says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. Isn't that what happened here? God gives the revelation of not only of his Son, But he gives them the revelation of what is going to happen in the churches at that time and also what's going to happen after these things. After these things. It begins in chapter 4. After these things. Meta Tauta. After these things. For the Father loves the Son and has shown him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. And I love that. Doesn't that just encourage you? It's a message given from God to Jesus, to the angel, to John, and then finally to us. But are you? You know, it goes on in verse 1. He says, to give, to show his servants... The word here is doulos. It's a a servant. It's a bond slave. Are you a servant of Jesus Christ? Are you a servant to him? Even though you may be serving somebody else because we all have a job, right? You go in and you're, you're actually a servant to some company, some corporation. Maybe you're a servant to yourself because you own a business. But are you a servant of Jesus? Because you can be a servant somewhere else and yet be, be a servant of God. Hopefully you're being a servant wherever God has placed you. You can serve him in your workplace. You may not be able to mention his name for fear of death. And I say that with a tongue in cheek. But on your lunch hours, after work, and if somebody asks you point blank, hey, are you a Christian? You have the right to say, yes, I am. Would you like to hear about it? Yeah, I would. But let's wait until lunch. I'll wait for our break. I'll tell you all about it. But are you a servant? Are you a doulos? Are you a bond servant of Jesus Christ? Notice, things which must, uh, things which must shortly take place, as it says in verse 1. And really what this means is, obviously it's been a long time since this was written, but what this means is that The idea is that once it begins, it will unravel quickly because we know that it hasn't happened for nearly 2,000 years where we've been waiting. But the word here is once it begins to happen, once these things begin to unravel, it's going to happen quickly. That's what it means. And he signified it by his angel 
signify is to make known something. And certainly the angel is going to show signs and symbols. And a lot of these things are defined for us in the Old Testament. A lot of these things Jesus defines for us. A lot of these things the angel will define for us what these things are. Now, there are things in the book of Revelation, as we get into it, that are still a mystery to anybody. And anybody who thinks they've got a stone-cold stamp of understanding on it is not really telling the truth. Because there's mysteries that are written here. There are creatures that are described, demonic hordes that are coming upon the earth that defy description. Even John had to use similes. He had to use similes. He had to say, it's, and even describing Jesus, it's, it's like this. It's as this. It's, it's sort of like this. You get the language? A lot of similes. It's like this, because language fails what John had seen, but he tried his very best and gave us enough. But notice verse 2, that he sent and he signified it by his angel to a servant, John, who did what? Who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things which he saw. He bore witness. The word is martyrio. It literally means to bear record, to testify of something. And here John is saying, I bore witness and I testify to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. He's affirming that one that he's seen and heard or experienced something, and he knows that it is by divine revelation or inspiration. In fact, in John chapter 21, in John's gospel, in fact, the whole thing was written. Why? That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and believing in him, you might have life through his name. Wasn't that the, the main verse of John's gospel? That really summed up the entire gospel. And did John accurately and testify of Jesus, who he was? Yes, in fact, that's why the gospel of John was written. It was very different from the others. That's why they call them the synoptic gospels, because they were all covered similar things. Hence the word synoptic. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all carried the same kind of thing. But John says, oh, that's great, but I want to tell you who this is. This is the Son of God. He is God Almighty in the flesh. He is the Word become flesh. And that's what John says. So John certainly did. He bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. In fact, in John's Gospel, chapter 21, beginning in verse 24, he said, this is the disciple John speaking of himself, who testifies of these things and wrote these things. The word testifies there is the exact same word as our word above, who bore witness. It means the same, it's the same exact Greek word. To testify, to bear witness. John says, I testified of these things and I wrote these things and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that could be written. That's what he says. He bore witness to the word of God, the Logos, the very expression of God. And we know in John's gospel, he spent a lot of time talking about the word, the Logos. In the beginning was the word, the Logos. And the Logos, the word, was with God. And the word, the Logos, was God. And then you're wondering, who is this word? Well, he tells you in verse 14, and the word, the Logos, became flesh and dwelt among us, none other than Jesus Christ. And I love at the very end of this book, John bore witness of the word of God to the testimony of Jesus Christ. 
And we don't have to guess either, because at the very end of the book, near the end, in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, what does it say? Let me read it to you. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called what? Faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Isn't that the the description that we're going to read next week as we get into verse 9 here in chapter 1? It's consistent, and it ought to be, because that's who he is. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. And here it is. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God, the Logos of God. He is the word of God. John bore witness of him. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon, which our own hands have handled concerning the word of life. There are three that bear a record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. The Trinity. He was eyewitness to Jesus' transfiguration. Remember, Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. They see Jesus unveiled before them, transfigured in a figure that he was not previously. He revealed some of his glory, and they were in awe and wonder. They saw his clothes glistening and his hair. And I mean, that maybe they saw this exact same thing, I don't know. But whatever it was, it caused them to fall flat on their face. And that's a rightful response to a holy God. You know, wouldn't it be awesome? I wonder what would happen. You know, we're no different than John the Apostle. We're no different than Paul. We're no different than Daniel. That when they saw a visitation of Jesus, or even an angel of God, they were so undone by their glory and their magnificence. It was like an involuntary reaction. When you have an itch on your nose, what do you do? You do that. When they see Jesus, they fall flat on their face like as if dead. See, that is something that just, does that jazz you? (laughs) That really encourages my heart. And then he reaches down and he says, don't be afraid. You don't need to be afraid. You're one of mine now. You don't need to be afraid. See, that's, that's that's who we serve. Love that. But notice, verse 3, said, Blessed is he who reads. And the idea is read out loud. Certainly, if you just read it to yourself, you're going to be blessed. But the idea here is read it out loud, like we're doing today. We're reading this letter out loud. Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear and keep those things which are written, for the time is near. You know, there have been people for a long time that have been saying concerning Jesus, oh, he's never going to come. These things aren't going to come. These things that are written in the book of Revelation, they're never going to come. That's just a bunch of nonsense. It's just a story. They've been saying this for 2,000 years, and it hasn't come to pass yet. Well, Peter said, he said, Beloved, in 2 Peter chapter 3, he said, I, I now write this to you, the second epistle, of which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, and and the world is filled with them. The church is filled with scoffers. Why would you even want to come to church unless you really believe, but yet they like to come and harass you? 
Thank God we don't have too many here because as soon as we find out who they are, we ask them to leave. Unless they're willing to come in and listen, then they're welcome. But if they're coming in here to divide, we're going to escort you outside because it's that important. They walk according to their own lusts and say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Have you heard that excuse before? For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the worlds that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Yeah, from our perspective, it may seem like a long time. From God's perspective, it's just like, what time is it? I just left. So it's a matter of perspective, isn't it? But blessed is he who reads. This is the only book that says that there's a blessing attached to reading it, to hearing it, and more importantly, to keep it. The idea of keeping is a little more... Um, meaningful than that. We'll get to that. But the word blessed is truly happy, extremely blessed, supremely blessed. That's really what the word means in the Greek. It's markarios. Are you supremely blessed? Are you blessed? I mean, let's just start over here. Are you, are, are you blessed? Are you blessed? You know, and if we were to all go throughout the room, why are you blessed? And let's start writing something down. I'm blessed because I, I know my name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I got a great wife. I got a great family. I got a great job. All my needs are met. And even when I got a cold, even when I've been labeled with some kind of sickness, I, I got great health care in this country. Think of the great things that we have. No other country like this in the world. Praise God. I'm not, I don't feel guilty about living here in America. I'm blessed. Too bad it wasn't bigger that everybody could come here. As long as they submitted to, you know, the authorities. <laughs> but if you want to come in here and set up a caliphate, eh, sorry about that. But if you come here, you, you, you abide by the rules of this country. We are blessed. And we have been given the charge, the wonderful blessing, the wonderful gift to share that truth. And you and I are more prepared and have the resources more than any other country in the world. Let it stir you. Think about it. And put feet on that. Remember the great resources that you have and give them. Don't hang on to them. Don't hoard them. And I'm not speaking of money necessarily because I'm not, you know, Joel Osteen. God doesn't need anything. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. The very paper, <coughs> excuse me, that the money is printed on came out of the ground. He's like, yeah, I made that. Big deal. Gold? <laughs> going to pave the streets in heaven with it. It's going to be so pure, it's going to be clear. But blessed, blessed, how blessed are you? Blessed. Remember Jesus in the book of in the book of Matthew, chapter five, talked about the Beatitudes. What did he say there? 
Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Do you hunger and thirst after righteousness? I do. Do you want that? Do you want, do you hunger at why? If you don't, why don't you? Why don't you hunger and thirst for righteousness? I can tell you why. Because your life can be so filled with so many other entertainments, books and music and TV shows that you watch that are totally erasing any good thing in your soul that God placed there. You have to make a decision today. Am I going to be blessed? Call myself blessed, but then go back to the same cesspool time after time? Or am I willing to say, you know what, enough's enough. I'm going to turn off that junk. I'm going to stop listening to that. I'm not going to look at those, those little lusty novels at the Harlequin store. I'm not going to read that stuff anymore. It just creates images and issues. Do you know that? And then, never mind. I won't even go there. Blessed are the pure in heart. Are you pure in heart? Pure in heart? Do you want to be pure in heart? There's something that you have to do. You have to refrain from those things. And as you do, every single moment that you continue to refrain, your heart is going to become a little more pure, a little more pure. That's something that you have to do. God gives you everything you need to do it, but you physically got to do it. I can say I'm a child of God, but if I don't put feet on it, if I don't do something, that's why Paul says, crucify those things and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put it on. It's something you have to do. I have to do it. I can't just sit around and go, oh, God's going to do it for me. Well, God loves you, and he's given you everything, but he's not going to... You've got to get up off the couch. You've got to physically go do it. He's not going to force himself against you, but are you blessed? Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who persecute you for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. But are you truly happy... Do you have a joy that the world cannot take away? That's what the idea of blessed is. It does include happiness. But happiness can be dictated by my bank account, by my health, by the people that I have around me that love me or lack thereof. I can define my own blessedness, but the blessedness of God is so much different. The joy of the Lord. Is the joy of the Lord your strength? His joy that he has for you? Does that bring joy to you? Is that your strength? The joy of the Lord is my strength. That means that his joy becomes my strength. What does he joy in? He joys in you. He joys in you and me. But as we look at this, we see that this is the first beatitude of the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation has beatitudes as well. Did you know that? And it's funny, there are seven of them. You're going to see an interesting pattern throughout the book of Revelation. There's a lot of sevens. Seven is a number of completion, a number of perfection. So many things talk about the number seven in it. And certainly there are seven beatitudes in the book of Revelation. Certainly this one. And and let me just uh, read them to you, and I'm going to mention a few of them. Revelation 14, verse 13. You can write that down. Revelation 14, 13. Let me read Revelation 16, verse 15 to you. What does it say? I love this one. I've only, I'm only going to share a couple, and I'll give you the references to the others. Revelation 16, 15. Behold, I am coming as a thief, and blessed, Markarios, is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Revelation 19, verse 9. I love this one. 
Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That marriage supper that we're all believers are going to partake in after the rapture, in glory, with Jesus, while the tribulation begins on the earth. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. Revelation 20, verse 6, what does it say? Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be called priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. That's you and I, folks. We're going to rule and reign with Jesus for a thousand years. Revelation 22, verse 7, you can write that one down. Finally, Revelation 22, verse 14. Let me read this finally to you, and then we'll take communion together. Blessed, truly happy, are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life. Remember the tree of life in the garden that the Adam and Eve, they forfeited everything at, the, at that tree. God gave them everything. Stay away from that one, though. What does a child do? I can't have that one? Well, I better go lick it. I better go touch it. That's exactly what they did. It brought them down. But yet, in the kingdom of God, the tree of life will restore forevermore. Blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. Do you want to go through the gates of those city, of that city? Don't you love Jesus? Don't you love what he's done? <clears throat> what he's doing? And as we read, as we go through this, he's going to unravel the revelation of himself, his character. And yes, his character can be frightful, but the description of him is so beautiful. And yet the things that are coming upon the earth are going to be horrible for those who don't believe. But guess what? At the end of that, this physical earth, after the thousand-year reign of Christ, that's a thousand literal years that we will spend in his kingdom here on this earth, on this earth. But then it says it gets better than this earth and the heavens that currently are will be dissolved with fervent heat and a new heavens and a new earth will be created in well and where dwells righteousness. That is the eternal state, folks. That's the ultimately where we're going to be. There's going to be no devil. There's going to be no sickness. There's going to be no crying. There's going to be no falling apart, you know, having to take pills to sustain your moods and your bodies. None of that. Forever and ever and ever. And it will never, ever end. And we will always be in awe of the one. A million years will go by and we will barely scratch the surface of his character and who he is. We'll never figure him out, but we'll always be in awe of him. Isn't that awesome?